0: Greetings from the North and welcome to Forum Borealis with a new episode in our philosophy series. Our guest is Dr. Haralder Allenson, who's one of those with a supernatural CV. So we'll just go through the highlights and you can check the full story when we get his bio up at our website. Alan Son is a Doctor of Medicine, Master of Science in Clinical Neurology, Doctor of Clinical Nutrition member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists Although he's from Iceland, he's lived long parts of his life in India and United Kingdom He's worked as a consultant psychiatrist a forensic settings psychiatrist, a medical director and hospital CEO and is currently heading a hospital in Iceland. He's trained in various techniques of hypnosis, including past life regression and life between life therapy. He's a scientific acupuncturist trained with Felix Munn, but also a practitioner of Syriac system of orthopedic medicine, EMDR technique for trauma therapy, body-oriented psychotherapy and using Jungian techniques to integrate fractured parts as well as many internal parts of self-models. He went into psychiatry to better understand inner experiences in stable people and in illness, for trauma processing and wisdom emerging. And has integrated in his approach traditional spiritual practices like shamanic animals techniques, soul retrieval, spirit release methods, microcosmic circulation and all sorts of dream work. At a personal level, he's interested in myths, symbolism, dream time, sacred geometry, shamanic journeys, yoga and meditation, astrology, mantras, lucid dreaming and esoteric afterlife lore, to name but so. And is a student and initiate of several traditional esoteric associations and mystery schools like Theosophy, Rosicrucianism, Co-Masonry, Martinism, and Pythagoreanism. He's also well-versed in the Oriental traditions like Sri Shinmoy Shankara of Kanchipuram, Yogananda and Self-Realization Fellowship, Sri Anna Subramanian, Ayur and Ramakrishna Mission, Sri Vidya, and the Icelandic theosophist Sigvaldi Ialmarsson, with his main practice on esoteric tantra, mental physics, and breathing exercises. Harald Alanson hooked up with author and psychotherapist Keith Hagenbach and co authored a book called The Man Who Drew Triangles. The novel seeks to raise awareness of the intimate relationship between our planet and spiritual forces. Through the voice of a young Icelandic mystic named Olaf, we learn that the land embodies spirits, and humankind needs to work with the divine to bring greater well being, healing, and harmony to all living in the fold of Earth. Olaf demonstrates a respect of and understanding for the Earth, expressed in various ways, especially recognition of patterns through sacred geometry, ley lines and awareness of the significance of place names. Combined with shamanic techniques, some ancient earth mysteries are supported and illustrated by extracts from Haraldo's research into the field for more than two decades. Another central theme of the book is that by opening up and connecting with the mind of the planet, we facilitate profound and revelatory inner journeys. This is illustrated by Olaf's effect on his psychiatrist Patricia. She is one of many characters with differing levels of openness and consciousness of this worldview. Woven into the narrative is a healing journey involving confronting old wounds, customary trials and challenges. The book doesn't postulate, but raise questions for the reader to take from its layers whatever one is ready to. With this book as a context, we will now examine these and other subjects, especially insanity versus spirituality, and be warned that I will partake actively in this our discussion. welcome to forum borealis Harold. yeah thank you all now in the interest of full disclosure you and me we we go uh, way back so uh, we are friends in real life yeah but um, even so you are the first person i would want to invite on considering this topic Okay, And that's because when we're going to explore this thin line between, we could say, madness and uh, enlightenment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, you have the perfect background. Because as we heard in the introduction, you do have all these health, doctor, medicine, all listing psychiatry. But also, like me, you have a lifetime in esoterica.
1: Yeah.
0: So... Um, and and I also want to say, by the way, for the record, that you are the son of a world-famous scientist called Erlander Haraldsson, yeah. who some people will know him among us, his researched reincarnation and... Uh, Our friends over in the Skeptical podcast have interviewed him also for that. But now, Harald, you've uh, released a book that I'd say also explores this topic. And that gives me the excuse to invite you on. (laughs) (laughs) And that book is called The Man Who Drew Triangles. And it's actually a fiction Yes. You've, yeah, you've taken up this uh, this subject through through the novel uh, exploration. So, uh, tell me first, uh, basically, why you wanted to write this book? Well, I think there are many reasons. I think the thought came
2: to me probably in around 1993 when I was working on the East Coast and had set, made some quite interesting observations in sacred geometry of the land. Well. I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, I thought, well, it's maybe not something that you want to go into great detail for most people, because if it's just numbers and angles
0: (laughs) and roots of names, people get quite quickly cross eyed and say, where is this (laughs) going? Especially if we're doing it over radio. Those things need visuals, that's for sure.
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it, it... and for me, it obviously had also quite profound kind of experiential nature of it. So I thought, yeah, I could write a, uh, to create a field uh, on it. But actually, for people to to feel really what it means, you have to really enter somebody's mind. Mm. Uh, and I thought the only way to do that well would be in a fiction.
0: Right. Yeah, because you could easily have written about these things in What's it called in English? Facts? <laughs> D- docu?
2: Yeah, yeah. Maybe that will come later.
0: Yeah. But there are already a million books about those topics in that field. Whereas in the realm of fiction, I don't know of too many books that explores this thing. It's interesting, I, because I know you, I I do sense that... Actually, you have two protagonists in the book. (laughs) But I do sense uh, some of you in both of them. Not that that's important. I've never been a fan of the uh, author through the characters because I know I can create characters that are completely alien or different to me. We all have all the archetypes in us, right? Absolutely. But it's still a little apparent because Olaf, as... uh, I'd say the the shaman figure, the person who represents craziness, chaos, but also also spirituality. The young man, Olaf, he he kind of reminds me of your younger self or the youth within you. Whereas Patricia, who is the grown up, she doesn't just, well, she represents common sense and she represents the, the head, whereas he's probably more the heart. She's order. But she, she also has a spirituality in a way, because I, I'd say spirituality is everywhere. Yeah. And you also find spirituality in um, what she represents. Besides, she has a dwelling. Uh, uh, even though she's agnostic, she has an innate spirituality in that she has the uh, faith from her background. So she represents maybe the more responsible you your your persona you're, you know, you as heading a hospital and when you work with healing people and healing is very spiritual too and we know also that in the ancient times we had these healer prophets, these, um, uh, yeah, shamans and we find both those roles covered in your two protagonists. Mm -hmm. Now I've talked myself away from my question. Um, I think if I take you on that, I think, yeah. Uh, obviously, there are, there are a number of key
2: characters, but these two are kind of fundamental. And they, the way I understand them is that they stand for different points of view when you approach the inner reality.
1: Hmm.
2: And while Olaf is, um, in in a sense, absolutely mad in the sense that <laughs> inner, inner world is fundamental to him. External world is more fleeting. Right. While Patricia is the very opposite so for most readers, Patricia is more the, the safe journey through the book,
0: yeah.
2: but at the same time, she has this history, a familial history, experiential history of delving into the spirit, but also kind of avoiding it, yeah. uh, being a little bit afraid of it. And she's fascinated by Ola, but um, is uh, very
0: cautious of entering his world. Yeah, because in in her mind, he's kind of walked into the deep end. Absolutely. And most people are afraid of never coming back. Yes. From the abyss. There is no coming back. There is. No. <laughs> <laughs> if the cat is out of the bag, it's out of the bag. Yes. But um, I think I was going... It was this interesting dynamic between them and what they represent because they, they kind of represent what we, we're going to discuss here today. Okay. And Although we are going to go into philosophical and uh, topical issues here um, when we converse, the book will be looming in the background and we'll, we'll go back to the book as a reference uh, many times because these subjects are touched in the book. Yeah. And, um, I think we, we ought to begin with, actually, I want to begin with you as a psychiatrist and put you on the spot a little bit. Okay. Because most people who are somewhat spiritual awaken are very skeptical to <laughs> psychiatry. And it's no wonder because usually they are pharma pushers. That's basically what they are. They are legalized pushers and I tell you my friend actually I know many psychiatrists okay <laughs> not not from not from patient experience thank god but uh, nevertheless I'd say that it's a typical job which attracts psychopaths because uh, I think it's attractive to people who feel some kind of power trip if they have control over people's uh, minds or, or they think they do And uh, of course, uh, the baseline is that people want to help, but it has uh, a shady history and uh, a very bad rap, I'd say, especially among some circles. Now, to balance that, I want to say when you lived and worked in England, you told me once that... um, you, you told me you were a member of a paranormal research club for psychiatrists or something like that. Yeah. And I was amazed that that even existed because most uh, psychiatrists I know are is completely atheist. Well,
2: within the Royal College of Psychiatrists, there's a group on spirituality and psychiatry, uh, a very active group and really one of the biggest in, in England within the, within the college. Wow. Uh, and he's been very active, writing books uh, and uh, getting involved in training young psychiatrists and teaching people to take what we call a, a spiritual history. So when you're seeing a, a new client, you should always explore what his worldview is, his his spiritual experience, what really matters, whether it's in kind of um, traditional religious terms or, or more of a spirituality and personal journey terms. Mm. and. Um, so it is really a fascinating group and has opened a lot of this world. But but on the point you you said earlier, obviously the one of the biggest problems with medicine, and not only in Europe but worldwide, is that is primarily a business based yeah. uh, model. So for example, whatever field it is, there's a lot of uh, medicine, both old medicine that no longer are, are, are on a license, so that they don't earn uh, much money for for the companies that sell them, but a lot of herbal medicines. And, and at the moment, it's just the drug companies who run the business. They create a, a business model: you research something, you show it works, and therefore you have you are licensed to use it for a particular problem. We we really need a, a UN-based pharmacy who researches a medication or plants to be able to put them on the market without profit. Mm. So while it's important to have some uh, business model, I think it's also important to have a a non-profit model to counterbalance the old, both to use old medication and to go into
0: into wider field looking for treatments. Yeah. In fact, this is a huge topic. Uh, It's actually a topic for its own interview. So we'll explore that in other programs i, I want to go on on several tangents based on what you said but i have to be the good host and steer us back but i'm glad you said what you said Thank you. so people understand where you're coming from and it's also a very good sign if the royal college of psychiatrists are open to such things as i know you among else you explored the. Uh, you told me about this, exorcism, uh, de- possession stuff like that.
1: Yes.
0: Just being interested and open for that phenomenon means that those psychiatrists at least takes their work seriously because their work are, after all, your work is exploring the field of the mind, yeah. also based on medicine, but not just reducing everything to chemicals and uh, pharmacy, right? So... So that is a good sign. Yeah, the concept of uh, exorcism is
2: very, very interesting. And after the spirituality interest groups, we we had a conference on uh, exorcism, e- even more than one. And it's been the, mo- the most attended, I think, of all conferences wow. after college. So there was really a lot of interest. Um, and I was actually one of the speakers there looking at the, the kind of... Um, appearance of spirits or demons or angels in interviews with people with multiple personality and and to what degree they are demons and angels or to what degree they are more archetypal aspects of uh, self-merging in consciousness and you can can have dialogue with but they are really parts Mm. of yourself. So it's a a fascinating topic.
0: It is. I may actually, if you have time, maybe we can go a little into that later. No problem. But... Where we really should start is, um, I want first to have you account for <laughs> what we just could call insanity, whatever that is. No. Let me say first, it's interesting that in ancient and primitive cultures, it is all often spiritualized, actually, where it can be regarded as a gift or a curse. Uh, where it can be a r- resource, a superstition. We also see that, for instance, the shamans, they are, they are psychonauts. They are explorers of the mind and they have to overcome their own limitations. They have to go through these initiations where they master fields yeah. of the consciousness and uh, often with mind bending psychoactive drugs. <laughs> We're back to psychiatry. And people kind of struggle with... I mean, today we will say that something is crazy if it's just alien to us. But what is insanity, really? And sanity uh, is there any clear line between that? How would you at all define it? And I'm not saying strictly in a medical term now. I'm talking philosophically here.
2: Well, there are certainly... And ways to differentiate between what you could call a psychotic illness and psychic experiences. It's not really by defining the experiences itself, but to to what degree it affects the person experiencing it. So you can hear hear things, you can see things, but that, even though we use those symptoms, if you like, to to build up a, a diagnosis. They are really irrelevant unless there's a lot of distress, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. Uh, it's not really an illness. So many people, up to even 25% of people, hear voices. Mm. Uh, normal people that don't associate hearing voices with distress, then it is not an illness. Mm. So it's really a a psychotic illness.
0: It's a state of really extreme distress. That's very interesting, because in my line of work, I've I've worked many years as a meditation instructor, and I have um, uh, noticed that if people don't hear it by default, for certain, they can go into states of mind where they do hear stuff like that. And uh, usually that's associated with uh, what's called uh, theta, the theta states of the brainwaves. Often it occurs between sleep and awake, that uh, borderline state there. So, But what you say is that it can also be triggered by stress.
2: Well, I said it actually is more... A symptom of distress, of oh. feeling really unwell, feeling full of fear, anxiety, oh. uh, etc., so feeling really intense emotions. Um, but there's another way of defining a mental illness, and um, is this is what we call insight. To what degree you are able to differentiate your experiences from normal life? Now... People with uh, psychotic illness, like schizophrenia, they often have periods of great distress related to maybe voices speaking to them uh, or talking about them and leading to really great vulnerability within them. They feel someone is plotting against them. Mm. So it's causing really intense discomfort to the person.
1: Mm.
0: And lack of clarity in thinking, lack of logic. It can be. Well, it is. But I think if you compare
2: dreaming with psychotic state, they have many things in common. Mm-hmm. So you may, in a dream, you feel it is the only reality while you're in your dream. You are fascinated by it. You may be your usual self. You may be a different type of self. You may be in familiar surroundings. You may feel comfortable or you may feel that someone is hunting you, et cetera. But at that time, unless you're having a lucid dreams, this is a dreaming that you have full faith in. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt this is your reality. Now in psychosis, you have almost like a dream going, which is fully convincible, as well as the external, and the two merge. Mm -hmm. So it's almost a dreaming function and the daily consciousness and sense of self are happening at the same time.
0: No wonder that uh, Olaf, the protagonist in the book, I noticed that some of the tools he's using in his path, one of them is dreams. Yes, and and that's also one that he can bond with Patricia on yeah. because that's that's one of the few. I mean, we all dream, right? Absolutely. And as a psychiatrist, or at least as a psychologist, uh, you should be interested in dreams. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, was she a Jungian-trained uh, therapist, or in the book? Uh, am I a Jungian-trained? No, not you, uh, Patricia, the psychiatrist in the book. Well, it's hinted at that she's very much into Jung. In, as an
2: English psychiatrist, Jung is not really high up on the list. But we 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 thought her as with
0: strong kind of Jungian
2: interest.
0: What about Willem Reich, by the way? Is he any popular these days? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so Dreams is a touch point. Yeah. So I'm glad you used that as a reference. In fact, uh, when I try to Imagine, well, if I was to put, to try to explain in layman terms, or maybe I would say metaphorical terms, the difference maybe between the average state of mind, the enlightened state of mind, and what we could call insanity, distressed state of mind. Yep. i use this metaphor and, and you can give me your response if you think it holds water. Okay. Let's say that average people are sleepwalkers who are walking around in the forest uh, and they are concerned with the immediate. So, okay, I can only see in front of me, but I can't see the forest for all the trees, right? So I'm kind of lost in the forest, but at least I'm, I can maneuver my immediate surroundings. Now, I'd say that if someone falls down in the water, in the lake, the people in the lake, they still have a a reality they respond to, but it's below water, so they are not very good at functioning. They can't see what's going on uh, in the ground where the others are. So the others will deem them crazy, because look, what reality are they talking about? We can't relate to this and it doesn't work in this world of ours here in the forest but if you go to the enlightened i see the opposite i see the the true enlightened people are people who have emerged from the forest and have started to walk up the path of the mountain yes and when you walk up the mountain then yes you have a new reality but at the same time you have the uh, perception of the forest, so you're not lost to the world. In fact, you ought to function even better in the world, if you, because you will have this uh, view, right, this survey. Yeah. So, uh, as a very rudimentary analogy, do you think that holds?
2: Well, I think it does. I think um, from a psychology point of view and a kind of yogi ideas, I think... I don't know if you heard about the kind of idea of the four states. The three are well known with psychology. Uh, The first one is sleepwalking, which you would call awakened state. That means you are awake, you're up up from bed, and you're awake and you're aware. Mm -hmm. The the second state is the dreaming mind. You are dreaming. The third state is the quiet mind, which is non-dreaming state. And then is the fourth state, which, um, for example, our clinic, we we um, emphasize a lot in, in while training in mindfulness the, the sense of knowing and noticing uh, the essence of consciousness itself because the, the in the waking state and usually within the dreaming state we have a strong sense of who we are and, and so in those two states you're bound with the history of yourself but as you go into the quiet state and into the clear state with the fourth level then there isn't a self, and when there is no self, there is no burden. So there is a, a kind of a freeing of mind mm. and that creates, and there's now increasing research on the importance of uh, mindfulness in in helping people to to deal with the troubles of their lives, with their traumas, with their mental health problems. So actually emphasizing the fourth state or the the awakened state, as you say, um, it is very powerful in in helping uh, you to deal with uh, your your mind and your nature.
0: Wow, I I didn't know that you could work with these these terminologies in in psychiatry. I mean, this is straight out of esoterica. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, so, yeah. In
2: both in Hinduism and Tibetan Buddhism, they talk about Turiya or the fourth state, and this is really the the mystery of what happens when you start to watch the watcher. Mm,
0: mm, mm. It is a paradox, if you like. Yeah, that's that's but, the answer to who's watching the watcher. <laughs> you are. <laughs> you are yourself, at least.
2: It has a profound effect, and it has this uh, release of the self from its own burdens and its own you know, apprehensions and attitudes and
0: everything. Right, right. But in, in the fourth state, then, uh, if it dissolves if it dissolves the ego, that's actually a a thing that they have in common with certain forms of insanity
2: momentarily it does, so only when you're in it, when you're back into your normal self, it's back with a vengeance
0: (laughs) (laughs) with all your flaws
2: (laughs) but but I think um, when you cultivate a kind of daily awareness of awareness then you can you're no longer in the storm of yourself, you're more of an observer and that that takes away the burden, if you like. So you're, you're still there, your normal self is still there, but it's not central of the consciousness, it's not really the burden of, of being. Hmm.
0: hmm. Very, very interesting. So let's say we, we put our toes in the water of insanity, now I want to put the other toe in the water of Esoterica. Okay. Because the book is dialectic in that, and this shows subject too, in that it is those two areas and the field between. And of the entire field of Esoterica, you've chosen especially sacred geometry,
1: yes.
0: which is prudent of you, considering that you're very well versed in that. Now... <laughs> I mean, I could quote to death right now. I won't do it. I'll just give a couple of Pythagoras. Okay. For instance, we have the one, the famous, in the beginning, God geometrized. And we also have the saying that uh, geometry is frozen numbers in space. In many ways, you could say that it's the feminine approach. Because it's the manifestation of the light of the numbers in three D, whereas time is is the masculine. And we also know that I've just read actually that they discovered at a quantum level, or this is goes straight to the design of reality. Yeah. They found that there are basic, I guess, Platonic solids, which is incredible. Yes. And, uh, of course, we also know that all of matter, what we define as matter, is built up of of different kinds of geometry. I mean, from snowflakes to galaxies. But yes. in another macro level, we have these uh, famous earth grids. You could probably call it power centers, these nexus of energy, li- like, uh, like uh, chakras in the body. Some call it dragon lines, some call it ley lines. It's never been my speciality, these things, uh, though they are interesting. But you are very good in these things. You've always been a little bit crazy about that. Indeed. <laughs> and, uh, and we also have, uh, have it often connected to names of places. You impressed me many times by showing discoveries regarding that. And, of course, there's many books about it. For instance, Henry Lincoln, very famous which was one of the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, who went into this area. Yes. And it's often of, uh, associated with sacred sites, old and ancient uh, places. Now, I, I want you to try to give an explanation of this field to the layman. First of all, how would you explain this phenomenon? And second and a uh, this is a very important question. Why does it matter? <laughs> what is what is the use of it? Okay.
2: Well, I think you gave the idea a bit earlier in the idea of kind of quantum qualities, especially quantum entanglements. I think uh, matter and space um, somehow can have a sacred nature. You wonder what that means, but it's a sense of wholeness, a sense of clarity, etc.
1: Mm.
2: And... I think the ancient cultures, uh, certainly the Indo-European culture, and probably most ancient cultures, they they had this idea that you need to weave, like almost like nest making, you need to weave the sacred sacred around your culture, around your your land. So they would create points of reference where everything that they knew was was done to create a sense of the sacred in that place, a sense of the clarity, a sense of freedom. And now with with names, with forms, they would weave um, a fabric of interconnectedness, a kind of quantum entanglement of the sacredness, uh, so people could almost plug in at certain places into this higher state of mind. So sacred geometry was just a toolbox to 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 do that, and even in in the land, but even on the physical body, mm. and they use the idea that language, in its essence, is sacred. is built on vowels and consonants, which all can stand for ideas of of the feminine and of the masculine, of the of the pure consciousness and power, and the idea that certain roots or certain ideas with words have the power to bring a spiritual awareness to a place. So very much like an unsung song for each place. Through the through the name and through the harmonies with other places with similar names, you, you forge a link. I think these are man-made woven fabrics, if you like,
0: that are put on the land and on the body. Really? Yeah. Because uh, there is a paranormal aspect to it uh, and you've shown me how, for instance, if you put a bird perspective to it, yeah. let's say we, we go into a anti-gravity spacecraft and we see it from above, we hover above places, we'll see that these lines... They chose places that are geometrically connected. Yes. If you if you use the bird's view, but not just that, they put names on it yes. that are, are related to huge distances. And this isn't like, well, we do know the Templars did this deliberately, actually, yeah, yeah. but. It s- certainly doesn't explain all these phenomena. It's not like it's been one band of enlightened people who has walked around and forced people to use names or put down no, no places. So how do we explain? Is it the su- collective subconscious that forces this up? How how is this even possible if it's only man-made? Uh, I, think, I I still think it's man-made, but I think it's man-made on a very
2: deeper level by by masters by people who have the spiritual gift. Have the ability to connect uh, to the inner realities is not done
0: by physical science, it's done by the science of spirit. Um, and yeah, but, but is it by intentional design or is it more subconscious, spontaneous manifestation oh. of a deeper connectedness that's subconscious?
2: Well, I think once you have woven a field of that consciousness over the land. Whatever you do following that will follow in synchronicity with it. Uh-uh. But I think you have to start the pattern by intent and by knowledge and by geometry and by sacred names. And once you've got it going, I think you created a field
0: which watches over its own nest. So the place can kind of manifest through you. Yeah. Your consciousness, you you connect with the energy of the place, and you give it the right name. You you found on the right spot, let's say a, a church or whatever. Well, I think
2: if we think of it as kind of a, a magicians of spirit, they would honor the spirit of place. They would seek to manifest an aspect of the sacred within it, uh, and they would think of other places, uh, preferably in sacred geometry relationship. And and through their consciousness, they forge an entanglement between these places. And through that entanglement, there is a
0: line of consciousness between the two places. So it's about uh, connecting. This is traditional back in ancient Icelandic uh, practice, isn't it?
2: Well, we certainly find a lot of it in Iceland. This is where I kind of um, discovered my understanding of sacred geometry and and the use of names and forms and etc. Yes. Yeah. And we have some uh, legend as well in our land normal. It It says that um, one of the Norwegian first settlers there called Grim, the gold shoe, he was, he was given the task to find a place for the parliament. And he is the highest paid man in Iceland ever. Every person in Iceland had to pay him a, a, a fee. <laughs> and he went around the country, measured and whatever. His name is very interesting because Grim mm-hmm. is one of the measuring tools of the old Roman surveyors, and goat shoe is is kind of he, he moves up and down mountains like a goat so so he's he's the goat lord of measurements mm-hmm. and he he finds a place for our parliament uh, Thingli, and he does it really by very simple means. He, decide, he finds the most western part of the land to the most southern part of the land. He draws a line between these two outside guardians if you like mm-hmm. and he, he divides the line by golden ratio and there you are. Yeah. so and this idea of golden ratio is create a kind of a golden harmony, a point between two, between two places where there is a sense of the sacred.
0: But um, in the book you have used, uh, I noticed more Celtic references uh, and you've chosen mainly to focus on Britain, although I do know you have charts for <laughs> probably the whole world. But I've seen at least you worked with Europe. Uh, it, why did you choose Britain and, and the Celtic uh, references? Well, I, think,
2: uh, I think the Icelandic tradition probably comes from a mix of, of uh, Ireland, the, the Scottish Isles, and, and Norway. So it's more or less going back to the roots where the, the system was formed, and, and I think within the pre-Christian Celtic tradition, we had this kind of almost like original Indo-European tradition where the mountains become a focal point, on the kind of the sunrise points or midwinter and midsummer. Become the symbol of almost entering the sanctuary and graduating from the sanctuary, from the school of spirit, mm. and, and there were certain certain gods related to these two directions, uh, who then became uh, Christian saints in the early Celtic church. So for me, the, the kind of the, this foundation of what I found in Iceland is is really in in the UK, even though you can find it in, in certainly in Norway and elsewhere. Um, I, I was certainly drawn to it. Also, I was thinking about how how could I start to bring my ideas. And I thought the English um, they love their land, yeah. and they have a really in, uh, kind of attachment on a small scale. We Iceland is like the mountain and the vastness but the English like their gardens. <laughs> they like the Hobbits. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, they, are really, they have a sense of the, of the land, and the Irish certainly even more so. So, so we, we take Patricia and her son, Colum, uh, and in fact, St. Patrick and St. Columba are, are these two stages of beginning and ending their spiritual journey. Mm. They're often symbolized by the black and the white bird.
0: That's not the reference to Hugin and Munin, is it the the two ravens of yeah. Odin?:
2: Well, it could be. Um, I think obviously in Nordic mythology, we have the the two, the two uh, black ravens, but we also have the eagle, and the eagle is usually then a symbol of that luminous bird, while the the, the black bird is is the beginning. It's the, the beginning of seeing
0: in the darkness, mm. or stepping outside darkness into the light. Again, we have this field between the unconscious and conscious, order and chaos, sanity and clarity. Uh, By the way, because I guess no names here are coincidental, Patricia, that was the relation to St. Patrick. Yes. That's why you gave her that name. Why did you call uh, the other chap Olaf?
2: Well, in in the Icelandic mystery, uh, Olaf, just to, to explain first, in the Iceland edition, thinks the esoteric tradition is very different from else in Europe because there was never a war between Christianity and the heathen tradition. In fact, the Christian priests, they were all educated in the ancient ways, and our first schools were attempted to integrate the two. So poetry, culture, spirituality, and religion, they were integrated. So when the Icelandic kind of heathen tradition was translated, Olaf, which was King Olaf, either the the former or the latter, mm-hmm. at the time of the settling uh, in Iceland, they they stood for the holy man. The king means someone who's overcome his darkness, and Olaf, like in Tarot symbology, yeah, in, in Nordic mythology we have four types of men, very similar, like in India, we have. The Thrail, or, or the slave. We have the Karl, or, or Charlie, who is the, the farmer. Hmm. We have the Earl, who is the leader of man. And we have King. Um, and they really stand for three stages of man. Hmm. The, the one who is a slave to his being. And one who is starting to
0: care for others. The one Sorry, what was the term for the second one? What did you call him? Karl. Karl. Carl, okay. Charlie. Charlie. Okay. <laughs> it's just smart. Like in Charles? Like in Charles, oh, okay. yes. yeah. Do you do you have that in Norwegian? Carl? Carl? Well, but it's imported, isn't it, from French, I think.
2: Yeah, okay.
0: Hey, we, we could say car, like a, a chap, a guy. I don't know if that's related.
2: No, at least possibly it's possibly in because... The difference between um, Icelandic and Norwegian is that we have a lot of Celtic words. Yeah. And the the name for man and woman,
0: Karl and Carling, they are probably Celtic rather than Scandinavian. Hang on, Karling, I do think in Norse. I do wonder if that's not, th- This isn't my forte, but um, it doesn't matter. I, I think it's Celtic yeah.
2: uh, root rather than Scandinavian root. Okay. But Karl is the the. If you like, the caretaker, the root could be core, heart. Mm. The one who is has um, awakened his heart, who is starting to look after others. While the earl, uh, because all these three first three words are from the root earl.
0: Okay, we say jarl, as you know. Jarl, yes, exactly. Same
2: in Icelandic. But earl, we have
0: the name even, jarla. Yeah, jarla. And that
2: means uh, someone who is actually exploring spirituality while the king has embraced his Spirituality and, and Olaf in Iceland, for example, in our our saga of uh, of Bard, the Snow Mountain God, um, Olaf is a really key, uh, and he stands for the consciousness, the fourth consciousness beyond Trinity. While Bard stands for the third part of the Trinity, so Olaf stands for the kind
0: of uh, the fourth state, the behind state, if you like. Right. The, this snow mountain god is present in your book, by the way, which yeah. is kind of funny, considering that there's hardly a mountain in Britain <laughs> 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 compared to Iceland and Norway. <laughs> true, true.
2: But actually, Bard learned from the mountain lord in Norway called Dovre,
0: Yeah. like
2: Dovrefjell, Dovre Gubben. Like yeah. Yeah. Just
0: for people who don't know, like in uh, Dovregubens Hall, the Hall of Edward Gregg, the famous song. Yes, exactly. <inspections> Excellent. Just everybody knows that tune, right? Yeah. And uh, Dovrigubens, yeah, that's an old traditional... Uh... And interesting,
2: it's not that old either, because to this day, the, um, the Norwegian parliament, uh, the oath says something along the way as as long <laughs> as the Dovre remain. So it's really still an
0: oath to the old Dovre Kuppen. Yeah, until Dovre falls, I think they say.
2: Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So but still Dovre, is is and, and Dovre means an eternal mountain, so it will never fall.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a clever way of sneaking in eternity. Huh? <laughs> By giving the sham of That's how they conduct modern warfare. You know, it's the perpetual war. Yeah. But it's war for peace, of course, but we'll never get there. Yeah. Now, there is this book, which I think is fantastic. And the author, I'll have him on. Okay. I do hope you read it. It's called The Norwegian Pentagram. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's concerning the, uh, when Norway became Christian. Yeah. Nine thirty-four to eleven fifty-two. Have you read it? Yes, I read it. That's fantastic. Uh, have you communicated with the author? Uh, uh, a tiny bit, yes, tiny bit. Okay.
2: I think um, most of these traditions are from Icelandic sources, from our Hymnskringla by Snorri, and uh, they really about. They start with Olaf, who was obviously a, a sea fearing Viking who becomes Christian and and plots to bring his um, kingship to to Norway and and then use the the old tradition to, um, to take hold of the kingdom. While this is, from a literal point of view, all about bringing Christianity into the kingdom, it's more than that. It's just another old heathen myth of bringing spirituality into the kingdom. Okay. Um, well, rather than just Christianity. So the king becomes the the bringer of awakening in, in the land. Right. And then there are focal points where where he kind of anchors his, his uh, awareness.
0: Right, because he, he does uh, touch upon things you touch upon. But, I mean, you do it through fiction. He does it through history. But the point of even dragging this book into the discussion is that... You mentioned Christianity of Iceland, but the thing is, this chap has uncovered a very interesting hypothesis that I I think may be true, and that is that when Norway was Christian, we we imagine and we learn in school that it became Christian through the force of the sword, by just brute, primitive, forcing. That's the official narrative. But he has uncovered that the first Christians... In in, uh, Norway was actually of the Celtic Church, which obviously was crushed by the Catholics. So uh, even that's a huge discussion, what was the Celtic Church. And it's for all intents and purposes, it seems that it was much closer to Norse tradition because it was... Related to the Coptic church and to the Pythagoreans and to this uh, sacred geometry thing. Yeah. And I think it would have been much easier for the first Christians to convert people, to get people on board with this new religion. Kvite Christ was suddenly a innovative form that they could relate to rather than just this alien, primitive Abrahamic tradition. And it was... Later, when the Catholics regained hegemony, uh, of course, after they crushed the exterior enemies, they started inwards and they started to take uh, faction after faction to bring everyone into the fold, right? And So that's what we imagine of how it was. But it uh, seems to me, from what he has uncovered, that no, the first Christians were actually very much more spiritual and we also see here that he has like your planches like your maps charts in your book he uses the same and but he includes then also scandinavia and uh, there's a definite relation here and i know you worked with many of these triangles and by the way your book is called the man who drew triangles yeah, yeah. Yes. and so uh, so and, and that includes, of course, circles and pentagrams and uh, all sorts of basic uh, geometry. So, I'll, yeah? If I can stop you there just for a moment. Sure, sure. Because my view
2: of these tradition is slightly different. Okay. Um, because what I see that these old texts are doing, they are marketing a new culture in the style of the old. So when they say that they, the Christian was brought on by the sword, they are more or less saying that King Olaf who brought Christianity, or Harald, etc., they were like Thor with his hammer. They brought truth to the world of giants. They right. He used his power and might to do it. Uh, because in the early, uh, both Celtic and, and uh, Catholic uh, Christianity, there were a few saints that predominated and they were more or less copied from Thor. They were copied from Vodan and others. So we had um, uh, we had Saint Martin because he he liked the bulls. We had Saint Michael because he had the sword, etc. So they are more or less copied after the uh, the old uh, naughty gods. So when, when it's is emphasised, it's done by power. That means the power of four, the power of spirit. So I think you have to understand that this isn't necessarily literally brutal, but in the ideas of the previous culture, it was done by the power of Thor.
0: Mm. Yeah, so it's a symbology, but, but there's also history traces here. Um, if we look at the first Christian orders that settled, and, and we know the Templars was heavily present. In fact, <laughs> we know now that the first Christians up here were... All of them were heretics. It started with the Celtic impulse, which back then, this was before the Celtic church was crushed. And you know better than me, you lived in England for so many years, worked there. You know the debate about the Celtic church and what was it really and and such. And what was its roots? I mean, some even claim that it was founded by Yushua Ben Yusuf when he was yeah. well. traveling there with his father. In other words, <laughs> before... Uh, The formal establishment of Christianity. But no matter that, just the fact that all these Templars who went to America, for instance, which is now proven, you have have the Kensington runestone that previously they thought was a fake, but which is now verified. And uh, you have uh, just the fact that those Christian impulses that are concerned with Geometry, name places, sacred sites, sacred geometry was present in that form of Christianity and in the ancient times, ancient traditions, Norse traditions. So I see a very short step. I think it's much easier to bring... Of course, there's always some stubborn old timers who refuse to get around. And I don't doubt that they had to kill some of them for for just for power purposes, right? right. But if you're like a wise man, if you're like uh, an enlightened uh, Norse uh, traditional man and you meet this band of new people, new initiates coming, traveling around, you would recognize. Yeah. Traditions aren't that different. I mean, you're the first to concede that Indian mythology and Indian tradition, that I know you've studied, by the way, uh, is very similar to ancient Norse, wouldn't you say? Very much so. A lot of the same names are used. And it's historically connected, too. It's not just that it's a similar kind of philosophy. It's also historically connected. Yes, uh,
2: it opens really... uh, We are so occupied nowadays that they... The beginning of culture was in Egypt and in Babylon yeah. and in Ur. But in fact, the old Indo-European source culture was around the Black Sea. Um, it was probably already strong, you know, 7,000 years ago. This is the place where we first created gold, that the artists are beginning. So this was the, the, the beginning of what we would say Western culture. And India is just that movement of that culture going east while Scandinavian culture is the same culture going north. And the Greek culture then just moving a little bit west. Mm. So they're all coming from this homeland, if you like. Mm.
0: Are you aware of, um, you probably are, you know our uh, local Norwegian hero Thor Heyerdahl? Yes. One of the last projects he worked on. Unfortunately, he died before he could see it through. But he was a proponent of the theory that uh, the Norse traditions originated around the Black Sea. And in fact, he took it so literal that he said that Odin was actually a clan's head yeah, who I mean, had that emigrated from the Black Sea area and up here to Scandinavia. Are you familiar with that? Yes, I even go
2: further. I, I think that the highest mountain in, in Europe which is Elbrus, is a reference for the god of the old Indo-Europeans. And so when uh, Valdon goes to, to Uppsala in Sweden, it is calculated from that mountain, certain distance, certain direction, when it goes to Rome as well, when it's got to Athens as well, even Mecca is calculated from that same reference point. Certain distance in certain direction from the key reference points for the Indo-European culture.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so back to Ley Lines and Dragon Lines. By the way, why are they calling it Dragon Lines?
2: Well, there is this myth um, around most rivers, whether it's Rhine or the Nile or whatever, that there is a great knight who kills the snake in the river.
0: Yeah, like the famous, is it St. George? St. George
2: in Danube or Donau. Um, we have it as Horus in, in the Nile. Uh, we have it as Beowulf in one of the biggest uh, rivers in Sweden. So, oh, yeah Beowulf. yeah, Beowulf. So I think for me, it is all about the central column of consciousness within the body uh, and the power that lies within it, which can both enslave and liberate. Once you put the spear there, then it is a collaborator, not Uh, an enslaver so it it is a symbol of transforming the the worlds, the life energies in harmony with the divine, then they have been speared then they don't live anymore for themselves but as part of the whole so for me it's a symbology of transformation of consciousness in the human state Mm.
0: which is uh, kind of also the subject in the book because Olaf is heavily traumatized and Traumas can often trigger these processes and I guess in a way he has to even though he represents in a way the spiritual, I see him more as the fool, yep. as the if you look to the tarot, it's kind of your starting point. You're getting open to it, but it's not as in the wise man, as in the experienced, you've been through the whole circle. No, no. no you're gonna begin on your journey. And so it's intuition more than it's uh, Uh, wisdom. I agree with you, but I think the fool can both be the first and the last card. I agree. Zero. I mean, the snake is biting its tail. I was going there, actually. That's where I was going. Because do you know the book called Zelator, The Way of the Fool? No. Finally. Finally, a book you don't know. (laughs) You have to read it, man. Okay. Actually, it's brilliant. Well, this guy, who calls himself David Overson, he, he's edited with an introduction the book. He says that these are the journals, the secret journals of Mark Hadsel. Okay. I think that's bullshit. I mean, he, he deliberately tried to... Uh, cloud the border between fact and fiction. I think he's done the same as bullvoliton he's he's trying to mythologize this thing mm-hmm. and I think he's the author and by the way, even his name, David Overson, I think is a pseudonym. but no matter that the book is called the Salator Magician, Magus or initiate. Okay. and basically what is done is that he has studied the way of the fool. yeah so yeah. this is seven hundred pages of esoteric exploration of that tradition uh, in all sorts of directions.
2: There's also a, a movie, slightly in a similar kind of way, which is uh, uh, called Being There. Being There. Yeah. Peter Sellers was the actor. Mm. And it's about a man who is more or less brought up, confined, because he's the secret son of a rich man, so nobody was allowed to know so when the old man goes, he goes into the world. all he has done is looking after the garden but his his language, even though it's of an imbecile, has a profound <laughs> meaning for everyone and the and the picture and the movie more or less ends he's he's going somewhere he walks across a lake, forgetting that it's deep right <laughs> because, right because even though he's a fool he's he has Yes, in his simplicity, kind of
0: gathered spirituality and and uh, has reached a profound state. So, yeah, innocence, right? Yes, the purity of not knowing the darkness. Yes. So you expect light. Yeah, yeah. And so it will be. Yeah. So uh, the way of the fool, uh, I mean, the, the trickster. We we can also kind of perceive this in certain. Uh, Personalities in the esoteric world, I mean one of the basic examples, although I think he's a maybe a little on the dark side, is Alistair Crowley. sure yeah you could you could say that he represents the fool, the trickster. he had a very dark humor, but it was a humor after all yeah, yeah. but uh, here David Overson explains, for instance, the origin to the first of April. All Fool's Day, yeah. and how all bets were off that day. Yeah. you could mock without punishment the the powers that be. Not only could you should <laughs> you should, <laughs> which is brilliant. I, I think they should bring that back to society, especially now that everybody is angry about everything. Right? Yes. It's a, you get the ventilation out, <laughs> and the powers can continue reigning safely. Yes, without a revolution. Yeah, I think it's very healthy. Yeah. Yeah. but people are probably not any clearer on ley lines and sacred geometry after this little discussion but at least we've touched upon it
2: well I can give you an example in the physical body the yeah. ancient Indo-European way of naming the body was done exactly the same way so it's all about creating isosceles triangles which is more as a triangle with two sides the same so um uh, the shoulders, for examples um, and the and the skull, they're from the same root skull, which is the goddess of the poets, god, goddess of the past, the mother of all. Mm-hmm. It creates a golden uh, section triangle between the shoulders and the top of the head. Now another name for the shoulders in Icelandic is herrar, which probably is is the mother Earth or something. Now the heart is also of the same root and in fact our testicles, so you create a triangle from shoulders to heart and from shoulders to your testicles. And these are uh, dedicated to this goddess. And th- they create a song, a sacred word, a form uh, with harmony, uh, which brings in this ancient name of the goddess. So I think there are lots of things like, and in fact, in the story, there's, uh, I think, one or two places where where o- Olaf actually brings the ideas of the mountains into his body
1: Mm.
2: and this is uh, based on this idea that in fact this this ancient magic of placing names in the body that the a sacred chant which in in india is called nyasa and is the foundation of tantric yoga is still in fact in the language of modern day indo-europeans
0: yeah yeah and uh, but but you say uh, to the testicles because this was the goddess. Does it only apply to the men, or I would uh, guess to the ovaries in women,
2: or the vagina? It would be her
0: doorway to the to the woman. I mean, the ovaries are the, the equi- equivalent to the uh, yeah. scrotum. So yeah, yeah. By the way, speaking of uh, ancient language, you mentioned, because that's a part of it, we also see that ancient alphabets, they have this interesting multifunction where every letter was also a number, which was also a picture, which was also a sound, which was also, also had a magical function. It was this multi-language which could be used. Uh, attributes was the idea, and and that's also the idea here, because we have resonance, we have dissonance, we have neutrality, and yeah, yeah. in fact numerology, uh, I prefer arithmosophy, which is purer, but we see it in Kabbalah, in gematria, we see it in all sorts of maybe we could go so far as even include astrology, we see that all these ancient systems of understanding the world are based in this primordial uh, sacred languages, sacred alphabets. Yeah. That if you go to the oldest languages all over the world, you'll see that th- these have all these similarities. And I've also heard that Odin, Vodan, as you call it. Vodan, yeah, yeah. all-fathers, yeah. your all-father. Um there is this story that he, his tribe regarded the, let's say, I don't know if it was the hieroglyphs of the Egyptians or whatever, but they too wanted such a powerful tool, language, that that's how they created the rules, yeah. it go something like that? Yes. and in, in Indian
2: culture, if you go to um, Tantrism, whether it's Hindu or, or Buddhist, then the 51 letters of, of the Sanskrit alphabet they are called the little mothers or, or madrikas. And one of the secret but also open traditions of the tantrist is to actually place all these 15 sounds onto the body, not only with intent, but watching for the impact or the effect. And still in India, what well, the first thing that young children are taught is to sing the sounds of the alphabet, not to say alf- a b c d e f g, but I'll see... Um, so they, wow. they are seen as the, the mother of consciousness, the mother of hearing, the mother of transformation.
0: So they basically learn uh, the craft of uh, mantras. Yes. Fantastic. We yeah, have much to learn from, from the ancient cultures and, and the remnants that still exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have the field of esoterica, which basically is the, is the path to enlightenment. And then we have the field of insanity, which is basically falling off that path and struggling to get back on your feet. Yeah, but also
2: in the book, it's also the fear of insanity, because people are afraid of the unknown. They are afraid to yeah. trust the inner world, because in many ways, as we approach the inner mind, we meet our, all our demons everything we're afraid of, everything that is unresolved. So uh, we know from research like on uh, Transcendental Meditation that many people actually get very ill, mentally unwell, when they start yogic practices because it, it brings out your suffering. Right. So the fear of the unknown is, is the fear of what you're going to meet there. But obviously there are just... Empty monsters, but but they need still courage to to um, confront and meet, like uh, Jung's shadow. Yes, exactly. Sh- the shadow is
0: is uh, both the liberator and the enslaver. And an interesting thing is the shadow cannot exist without the light. It's dependent on it.
2: Yeah, but also the I, I see the um, we see this certainly within mental health and kind of bipolar illness or manic depressive illness that. With all of us, we have uh, what I call the ox, the person within you, the shadow that holds and carries every day you, all your sufferings of the past. And then we have the manic, if you, if you like, the eagle part who flies, who sees visions, who who is free. When these two elements are in control, one or the other, um, people feel terrible. They are either overcome by depression or overcome by flight of mind. Mm. But there's no transformation unless the two meet. So it's about. Could could you repeat that sentence? I didn't quite catch it. Yeah, there's no. You need to get the equal and ox together. Mm. When one is in control, there is havoc. When they start to meet, there is transformation. So it's Mm. about finding the balance of bringing the opposites together. Right. Suffering, which has to be embraced, but if you embrace it too much, you're getting very, very depressed. And you need a bit of equal and compassion with it. But if you just fly up, you're going to be a nonsensical um kind of uh, theoretical ideas, fascinations. But you're still stuck in your very kind of personal framework, in your suffering and in your
0: little world. Yeah, because it's interesting to see in your book, in the beginning, we imagine that the protagonist is Olaf. But I think that Patricia, his therapist, uh, gradually takes over that role after she, because he confronted his fear very early when all this shit happened to him. I'll, I'll not reveal the details. So he went off the deep end. But through their interaction, I think she learned to trust more. Her, and, and it's true that you say, I mean, she, she's skeptical. Not so much of him as she's afraid of her inner. Maybe he represents that chaos in herself, right? Yeah. That shadow. Yeah. Eventually, she opens up and explores. So it is about overcoming the fear and integrating it. And I know from knowing you, we've talked about this many times, you've always had this Beef with the banishment mentality within very much certain traditions, magic and stuff, because that's like excluding a part of yourself exactly whereas yeah you're more integrity right yes, you you believe more in the fact that you cannot leave behind any part of yourself, and indeed, if you go to the shamanic traditions again, we see that they too speak of, I think they call it soul gathering, where you have to go back to to the places that wounds you, and that you have to bless it with your light, heal it, and pick it up, pick up these quote-unquote remnants of your soul that you left behind by the pain and trauma, put them back in your sack, and move on. I think it's
2: more than that. I use it in my therapeutic work a lot, that people's anger, people's darkness, people's depression you know, all these difficult emotions, you can actually very easily get them to be reframed as animals. Um, when they're in control, it creates incredible difficulties. But once you give them a personality, uh, a form, they be- become a protector. They become a collaborator. Mm. But if you battle with them, they just get fatter like the demon of you know. So the more you banish, the the stronger they become. Absolutely. But if you admire them and you get them to become collaborators, their powers assist you, not oppose you. Yeah, but how can you use them practically? Well, for example, someone who's got lots of problems with anger, either by exhibiting too much anger and frustration with people or becoming totally disconnected from their anger
0: yeah passive aggressive yeah
2: yeah so passive aggressive so mm. so when they are passive aggressive they have no movement in their life, they are stuck, and uh, obviously if they're too much aggression they 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 get in constant kind of conflict with people, but once they start to honor for example there's a there's a tiger with them, and they walk with the tiger they they try to get the, the to manifest that energy gently and more and more so within the lights. So they see it as a positive energy. They re- they reframe their energy and explore it, how they can manifest it on a daily basis.
0: Okay, so so let's drag this completely down to earth. Yeah. So a healthy manifestation of your anger issues would be what to pick up, let's say, uh, martial art?
2: It could be, but it also could be saying things that you found difficult to say, to to challenge people around you uh-huh. in a nice and humorous way, but... It is a matter of showing courage on a daily basis Mm. because anger in a destructive form um, is only destructive when it's badly used. When it's used in its best way, it's courage, it's direction, it's movement, it's power, it's life.
0: Yeah, it's all the positive uh, aspects of Mars,
2: basically. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So all these aspects of self can be, by using kind of shamanic uh, ideas, You can attempt to integrate them, and it's all through admiration and appreciation.
0: Yeah, but then it's an admiration and appreciation of the root, of the basic causal element, not of the manifestation of anger itself, let's say war or violence or... Well, the problem is that if you try to train the shamanic
2: images, they become impotent. You have to admire them and trust them to k- take care of the destructive qualities themselves so it takes a lot of courage and and faith if you like leap of faith mm. to do this but you have to allow the the quality to disarm itself and yet hold its danger because if it, there is no danger there is no power mm. so it takes it takes faith <laughs> it takes courage but it's a very subjective uh, thing yeah but once you use imagination to awaken these aspects, they become so vivid and so almost palpable. They become very, very real. Mm. Incredibly real. Yeah. On a daily basis you can see them, where they are around you in your room, even though they are not part of your physical reality, they become very powerful images within your inner world reality, even during your busy day.
0: Yeah. But I know that uh, people who more or less... Master this, or attempt to to do it. It's a two edged sword, actually, because uh, on the one hand, some people will will admire them or their qualities, rather, uh, because maybe they recognise that this is something they want to attain themselves. We all we all know how to recognise stuff in others that we ourselves seek. Yes. But the other, the shadow of that is uh, envy and projection. Like uh, uh, you'll meet people who oh, I don't feel comfortable around that guy or gal because, yeah, because he does display these things, right? And those people aren't. So it's it's not a very diplomatic solution, I think, actually. But then again, I'm not saying that's uh, uh, desirable because trying to please everyone is doomed to fail. <laughs> and I know that from my personal experience. <laughs> well, I think these techniques are, are, are amazingly effective and it just
2: takes a couple of days of work to to actually see how well they work. Mm. Obviously, everything that you work with the mind, you have to have faith. Uh, and yet you have to have suspicion. You have to have intellect. Uh, and uh, by mix of the two, you, you, you learn how to engage the different challenging parts. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I've always taught, uh, Harold, and indulge me. I'm going on on a tangent here, but uh, I'll come back full circle and let you re- reply fully. Okay. I've always uh, considered these lunatics who hear voices and stuff and, and not just not just crazy people also within uh, we have this phenomenon channelers and I'm not talking about enlightened people who actually do get a connection with something transpersonal uh, That's a different matter. in fact, we maybe have time to discuss that too, but I'm talking about that I've also noticed among these mediums. And I think I'm much more stricter and and close to this than you are uh, critical to these people who believe they are uh, in touch with, uh, it may be dead spirits, it may be angels, it may be aliens, whatever, just because they have, they learned some tricks, they've gone on some weekend courses, they've managed to open uh, their consciousness to... more than the 3D reality but then they haven't overcome their ego they haven't worked a lifetime on the path so Usually what happens, in my view, is that they are just connecting with, uh, I would say, suppressed aspects of their own ego. And that becomes externalized and that comes back to them as, let's say, voices. But they deify it or spiritualize it or or whatever. And so they think they are prophets or clairvoyant. But never mind that, my point is... They have something in common with, let's say, the schizophrenia, because I've always regarded those kinds of people that hear these things and act upon it. What is the matter with these people? If someone came into my living room and started to command me around, the first thing I'd say is, first of all, I haven't invited you in, but let alone that, I'd say... What the hell uh, gives you the you know insight to to claim these things? I want to test your claims. So if I heard a voice that say, hey, you have to do this, you have to go there, you have to believe this, you have to do that. Right? It's like in the Beautiful Mind. You, you know the movie Beautiful Mind, right? Yes, yes, I know. A brilliant guy. What he did was that he did challenge these things and he tried to find a way to live with it. And that's what I would do. If I heard voices say, oh, you have to kill Haraldur, you have to kill Haraldur, i say... Well, what does that give I me? I must stop you there. <laughs> I mean, you have to qualify must it. stop on this. Why do they act upon this? must
2: stop you on this okay, because okay. when people are in a psychotic state, yeah? it's almost 10 people shouting in the ears 24-7. And it's not only hearing it, it's in incredible distress. And in, in my area where I worked in England, uh, one of the social workers went to check on some guy who hadn't been to the day hospital for a little while. She never returned because when she arrived at his house, he was convinced that the devil was going to destroy the world, and this person was an agent of the devil, and he had to kill her to save the world. So he cut her head off.
0: Oh my God!
2: Yes, not very. Ha- doesn't happen very often, but this is the level of intensity of harassment. We also know from psychological uh, tests, you know, just I think it was done in New York, not you know, some decades back. You can turn almost anyone into a murderer in, a, in an hour or two. Mm. Everybody can, with, with pushing, almost everyone doing horrible things. And these voices can be so harassing, so overpowering. And one of the psychological treatments we actually use for voices is to help people to challenge the voices, as you were saying. But you can only do that when the, the fever of the psychosis comes down. Because once it's hot, it is so powerful. It is like a like a truck coming. <laughs> you can't stop it.
0: Wow, that's a good point. So, so they kind of yield to it in the hope that it will ease
2: yes. the pain. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and also they start to believe in it. They they become like in a dream. They're convinced of this reality, which obviously created by the inner dreamer. Right.
0: It is the only reality. Right. As we do every night in our dreams. Yes, yes, but even in our dreams we can apply some measures. I know I, I for one, learned many, many years ago, helped me very well. I learned uh, some magical tricks how to deal with fears in dreams. And uh, I've used those. And uh, after that, all my nightmares, in fact, I never have them anymore, but I really miss them. Well, occasionally, maybe once a year. Because when I do have nightmares, it's like watching the best horror movies in the world. Often I wake up and I think, I have to, if I sell this, it would be the greatest movie ever. But of course, I forget. <laughs> I don't yeah. note it down. But so that's that's a way where you overcome the fear. I, I get that, but my point is that my, my beef with them have been why don't you apply some basic logic, rationality, some tests right to the well, to the notions? But when you now say to me, "I now understand it better, you say it's like a, in a dream state, you don't always have access to the rational part absolutely
2: yes, and it's, it's it's a very weak weapon during the storm of psychosis right you can't really just like for example in severe anxiety some people get really bad period of anxiety and you you can try to be logical with them but they are unable to do so they're overwhelmed by their anxiety yeah they, they can't make any decisions and so they they become stuck in their state so they can't even access the the kind of the plain
0: logic Logic is better for the aftermath, I guess, for making sense of what absolutely. you went through Yes:
2: absolutely yes. Uh, when it comes down to logic, it's shit. it doesn't really work very well with the mind. Um, it, the creative mind, the heart, approach, the experiencing, honor of the experiences are the tools that work, but logic more or less worthless, unless as an end product at the very end of the process. Mm but um, not not very helpful. Obviously, they, nowadays, they are very interested in, in kind of um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which uses a lot of logic, Yeah, but you can't really use that in, in very unwell clients. They have... Sh-
0: not um, during the attacks, at least. No, no.
2: The, the, later on, in, in the kind of rehabilitation phase, yeah. not in the severe illness. People have tried it. Um, it works maybe a little bit, but often... Yeah. It is so um, so challenging for the clients. They feel threatened by the
0: approach. It doesn't have staying power, right? No. In the moment, it may, but then it's gone again, like a feather. Yeah, because of the
2: kind of the the sword of the logic, it's not a friendly way to approach someone with delusions and hallucinations. More or less, saying in short. You are an idiot. It's all bullshit. You listen to me. I'll tell you how things are.
0: So so actually, you'd have better reach to these people if you're a shaman or even a priest than if you were just a traditional cognitive therapeut.
2: Well, I think people are learning and people are starting to understand how it's important to start working within the world of the clients rather than saying, you're bullshit, I know what's going on. Mm. Then you say... You know, whether, because what happens in psychosis is symbolic speech. So you have to speak this symbolic
0: speech. You have
2: to be able to kind of
0: be. Yeah, it's like communicating with Jehovah's Witnesses. The only way you'll get through to them is that you know the Bible as well as they do. And then you argue on their own premises. Then they actually listen to you. Yes. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the same goes for all sorts of fundamentalists. All that. That's interesting. Yeah. I
2: want to corroborate, yeah? you wanna No, I just comment? you have to meet people and use their
0: own language to communicate. You can't, of course, yeah, yeah. new- When in Rome, right? Yes, exactly. Of course, I, I want to corroborate what you said because oh, I, I recently saw, uh, coming out of the closet, I just saw a Dr. Phil episode. <laughs> but it was very interesting because he is a behavioural, uh, therapist. Definitely. And he managed for a moment, he had this psychotic girl in his show yep. and she was convinced that she was pregnant with Jesus uh, or something. Uh, and uh, uh, long story short, there was a very interesting moment there where she claimed that she was all better now. She wasn't ill anymore. But she was. it was obvious for everyone watching she was in full uh, psychosis. And then he And then every time he challenged her, questioned her, rather, because he's very gentle, she said, Oh, are you accusing me of being a liar? But then he actually applied logic, because he confronted her with something she just had said. Okay. About, I, I forgot the details, but then you could see at her, uh, in her, that when he challenged... But yeah, but you said that, this and that, so doesn't that imply that you're not better? And she realized in that moment that he was right. And then she bu- uh, yielded and yeah, yeah, maybe. yeah. Mm.
2: It's, a, it's a little bit in the manner of Ellis, who was one of the psychotherapists who used challenging dialogue to help improve insight. But when you actually look in more detail what he's doing, it sounds like he's using logic, but what he is doing, he's... Engaging, he's respecting, he's listening, yeah. he's entering people's world. And taking them seriously. Yes. And, and, and so he's more as empowering people to be reflective rather than
0: challenging them with the facts. Mm. So, uh, because... I mean, that works not only for insane people, it works for everyone. everyone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to be a good salesman, that's the first trick in the book. Yes.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, so you really have to... Um, to show that you're able to listen and understand and help people to reflect, then usually everything gets better if you're able to support people gently in reflecting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And you're very right when you said, I mean, Darren Brown, this world-famous mentalist, he proved once and for all that you can make anyone into a murderer. Yes. He, He proved it through hypnosis. Yeah.
2: Well, in hypnosis... People have tried. Generally, in hypnosis, you cannot uh, get people to do
0: what they what their morals don't allow. But however, uh, no, Mr- no he, he challenged that dogma and he proved that okay. many times. He proved you can make them violate all sorts of basic mm-hmm. p- ethics.
2: Well, it's, it's easy. including murder. It's easier to do it during consciousness rather than hypnosis. Uh, Milligan uh, was a researcher in the states, and he showed that uh you can change people into real nasty pieces just in a matter of hours or in a in a few days yeah uh, by taking on roles like prison guards or doing involved in experiments etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah. we know that within everyone there is a vicious murderer torturer and it's only through culture and uh, cultural bounds that uh, society is civil when there's war everybody becomes mm. mad yeah yeah
0: you go back to the reptilian brain, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Survival instincts. Yeah. yeah. The full ego. The the higher self is completely shut out because you have to survive yeah. and in this world. The, the, the higher self is good for the for the universe and the entire world, but here and now it's all about the ego. Yeah, it has to survive. In the senses. In the wakeful state. You
2: have have to survive. That's the primal duty. Yeah. How is that symbolized by the lion? The, the consciousness. Well, the lion can be uh, can be so many things. It's all about what it means for you. It could mean your anger. It could mean your balance. It mean could it mean your quietness. It could mean your love. It is different for different people. It's not really defining symbols, but exploring what they mean. For, you know, finding out what they mean for you. Mm. They don't necessarily have a fixed meaning. They're they're more like mirrors
0: that can facilitate change. They're fluid. But what about archetypes? Don't you think there's some universal... Well, that was obviously Jung's idea. Not just his, but he, he, he was the first to bring it into psychology. Yes. He yeah. actually took it from esoterica, but that's another story. So what do you think about it, never mind Jung?
2: Yeah, well, I, th- I, I am more that depends on what level of consciousness you are. Mm. Obviously, in the idea of archetypal cells, when people having profound dreams at, at moments of change, they are in a domain of kind of archetypal uh, consciousness. And then the language feels very true. But in a more normal consciousness or in a dream, normal dream consciousness, the symbols may have different meanings. Our, my view is that this is always based on the individual and individual experiences. Um, we, we, we rarely stand on this, this pure realm when, when the, the primary elements uh, merge uh, as pure as they can be.
0: I think it's more of a, a rare occurrence. Right. But we do have uh, the DNA in common. We do have uh, certain coded... Uh, we, we have the basic geometry in matter in common. We have uh, certain... I, I think in consciousness, as in matter, there are certain patterns that are universal. No, I mean, you could wipe out the entire human race... And you could re- reboot it yeah. and certain things would get back. Yeah. Not just how we manifest physically, but also consciousness. And I think to access those, I agree with you, you have to go to the mountaintop, to the very top, yeah. to access them in the purest forms. So I'm not saying it's practically available for everyone or, or something like that. And I do agree that on the path to the mountaintop, there will be different routes. Eventually it will be for paths like east west north south but in the beginning when we're at the foot coming out of the forest there will be a million ways up right so i do agree that uh, you have to find your approach but there may be uh, certain commonalities that we can that we respond to and and, uh, adhere to if nothing else let's just say basic emotions like fear and love right yeah yeah
2: but my view is obviously because I, I in psychotherapy I treat normal people, not yogis or spiritually illuminated beings. Whatever comes up in your mind, you have to respect, and you can. When you think you know something, you are no longer experiencing it. So, so from an experiential point of view, it's always better to approach whatever live imagery comes with respect and admiration and explore them, have dialogue with them and allow their meaning to emerge. If you have a view of what they could mean or should mean, you're usually blind to their nature.
0: Yeah, I agree. That's when you're starting to conceptualize them and intellectualize them and, and, and try to convey them to others. Then it becomes dogma. Logic is of no help at all. <laughs> yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> but I'm I'm thinking even Jung said that you can never encounter them in their purest, most primordial, original form. I don't know if you can say never, but that's not practical. But you can deal with the manifestations and they can be different. Uh, depends on the layer, on the level, I guess. Exactly. But
2: Just like in Kabbalah, uh, in the yeah. Egyptians, no mortal man can uh, see the face of God because once he does, he's no longer mortal. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: good point good point that unfortunately like all these dogmas are degenerations of higher truths that the fundamentalists just can't understand so then we become iconoclasts and no no you can't depict god or whatever so it's crazy time is always fleeing when we're having fun um but I I need to go through a couple of more points with you before we close shop no
2: problem
0: so I did mention this possession exorcism phenomenon earlier and uh, even though you're not given that phenomenon big space in the book but I I still want to discuss it with you okay because it it kind of uh, borders on on the subject at least as far as spirituality and insanity goes and it's tremendously fascinating and you have deep experience with this because you could say it's typical today that we see that in psychiatry they think all these phenomena are just illnesses of the mind whereas in the more in the more mythical realities magical realities they are regarded as you know as entities as Something that happens with your mind. I I don't know if it's an either or anyway, but yeah, yeah. You wanna you wanna share some observations around this phenomenon? Yes,
2: I think it's a fascinating area. And my view is, don't have a view, go with the flow. <laughs> um, I think if you think you know what's happening, then you're probably not seeing what's happening. So I always keep an open mind. Sometimes it's more psychological. Sometimes it feels more literal. I can tell you an example. Just a Mm -hmm. a lady that I work with, she was uh, probably in her early 30s. Um, She wanted to have a second child. Now, she was worried because when she had her first child, she got very depressed and was very unwell for, for over a year. So she wanted to prepare herself for a second pregnancy. So she came to psychotherapy for me. With me, and there along with it came an interesting observation that she sometimes woke up in the middle of the night, very angry, and started hitting and screaming at her lovely husband. Poor guy. <laughs> yes, and she said seemed to have this oscillation of mood. So I saw her for a number of sessions and. We started working on childhood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and It didn't seem to make much of a difference. Um, now, usually I'm very cautious, especially in England, you know, where kind of exorcism is not really <laughs> seen as an appropriate treatment.
0: No, but I, I, I do know that uh, Catholic psychiatrists can apply it. Yes, they do it. Yeah.
2: yeah. But anyway, uh, on one occasion, her husband came with her, and I felt, well, that feels a much safer kind of way of exploring things are slightly different now mm. uh, because i'm also an acupuncturist and learned in in, uh, in uh, chinese medicine um uh, two o'clock in the morning is liver mm-hmm. and so i thought why don't we just play with this idea and i i said uh, do you mind if you have a look at your liver? And she said, what do you mean, my liver? I can't see my liver. Mm-hmm. Well, just imagination. Uh, play with it with me. What do you see? And she said, well, there's some dark edges. It's purple. And I said, well, let's focus on the dark edges. And after a little while, she suddenly told me that she was in a closed room and there was a young boy in the room. And who was this boy in the room? Oops. She had never told her husband. She had become pregnant when she was 18, and she had an abortion. Wow. And uh, so she had been keeping a big secret of her life. Right. And her husband was there. And I I said, do you mind if I speak with the boy? And the boy spoke with me, and I said, what's wrong? And he clearly was in a state of great anger. And I said, well, is it not time to move on? I said, "He's not moving on, and... We spoke about possibly a new child, and he said, "No, I'm not happy with that. I wasn't allowed to have any life, and all that." And so he was quite stuck with his anger. So I said to the boy, "Let's look a bit deeper. What's
0: holding you back?" Hang on. Did you communicate with the boy through her? Yes, through her. But was she in a meditative state? Yes, exactly. Or in a hypnotic state?
2: Well, just in a. I just asked her to go internally and share with what came up in her mind. Okay. And uh, so I so. The, when the, Then we had the third speaker, who was a demon, who said he was there to hold the anger of the boy. And I said, well, he's done an excellent job.
0: I mean, <laughs> Even I, the demons you uh, respect and meet on their own premises. <laughs> absolutely.
2: I, I thanked him greatly for his great labors. And said, well, it's my time to take over, and he's allowed to go, and he did. Wow. So, and then suddenly the, the boy... Um, was more kind of amenable to discussion and we agreed that uh, he could go but he was allowed to come and play with the children from time to time what children well the born son that was and the other oh my God. child that was going to be you know uh, he became he, be, he became an
0: invisible friend absolutely
2: yes <laughs> now after the single sessions all the problems dis- disappeared in this lady Wow. Uh, she start, stopped waking up at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. She became pregnant. She had a child. Didn't get depressed. Now, you can look at this in many ways. You can look at this. Yeah. This is trauma and secret during the pregnancy. Memories in the body suppressed. Yeah. Or you can say, well, maybe there is a soul that stuck around, wasn't acknowledged, wasn't happy. And he was stuck in negative emotions. And and the kind of containing field of these emotions was perceived as a demon, or you can take it literally. But anyway, the approach of honouring whatever comes up. I was not making up these images. They came spontaneously. You Mm. don't have to really know what they mean. You just go with the flow. You openly engage with them, and what? Transformation happens.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's the important thing. Uh, If you're going to be pragmatic about it, it doesn't matter how we explain it, as long as we get to the solutions. Exactly. But not to frighten people here, but The concept of a discarnate soul isn't that far-fetched in science either because, as I said in the beginning, your father has, to a far extent, proven, as far as you can prove these things, that reincarnation is an actual phenomenon. Now, of course, we don't know all the details around it and how it works, blah, 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 but... It is interesting that it seems to be more... Because uh, the most people, with a modern mind at least, will immediately go to the psychologization of this, right? Yeah, they yeah. will say, well, it was in your subconscious, it came through through symbols, uh, yeah. externalized through symbols, all that stuff, right? Yeah, he really? and
2: obviously his teacher uh, have, have um, shown, and he's got he's a, a lot of fascinating cases where people have memories of past traumas and even can point to their killers. Or they can forget. My favorite of his story was a Sri Lankan young boy who who claimed to have been a monk in previous lives and got his family to have worship every day. And, And then my father got involved and he found the monastery where he claimed to have been. But what was most interesting was one of the invocation he had taught his family was the secret mantra that was only handed from abbot to abbot in the monastery. Wow.
0: <laughs> and there's many examples of this that you can actually yes. find corroboration. Yes. The other alternative explanation to reincarnation would be precognition, no, not even that a form of clairvoyance or telepathy where you can tap into the yes. collective. exactly. That can be, of course, We'll not even start discussing reincarnation because it's such a huge, there's so many approaches to it that we'll never get off here. But it is interesting. But, you know, like you said in in your book, fools seldom differ. (laughs) (laughs) So I think think it's better that we use the fools approach here. We just accept these things and we approach it uh, phenomenologically, you know?
2: Yeah. And you can reflect on it afterwards, but while you're in the yeah. process, you just go with the flow. Mm. you honor whatever comes up.
0: would not some colleagues of you be inclined to disregard that because the born against that say that's as dangerous or whatever they they are afraid they are afraid the psychosis will be enforced by that yeah you can you have to show some courage. <laughs> And
2: it's all about trust. Once you are in a a state of trust working with someone, then you can't really go wrong. When there's suspicion and fear, it's certainly going to
0: go wrong. Indeed. The best intentions will crash. I have experienced that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And to a far extent, you could say that, uh, you know, this notion that you create You manifest what you expect. I mean, the whole basic of the secret hype, right? And that is true in many ways that if you do meet it with... I mean, one of the secrets, let's just disclose that, one big secret in esoterica is the more you trust something, the more it will manifest, you know, in magic, If you don't believe, and that's the problem with doubters, with agnosticism, with critical thinkers, they are actually honest in that they examine stuff and they examine their own, which is a healthy principle, you know, to evaluate and and be critical. But the problem with that is that stupid people, basically, people who have blind faith in their own notions, no matter how crazy and, and wrong the notions are will manifest that they have the power and people will follow them. <laughs> yeah. Look at the presidential election. But if you take it to a kind of a practical level, like
2: um, within relationship, you know, people fall in love, they're fascinated by someone, that someone really inspires them, they get in touch with something wonderful within themselves. But as the relationships start to deepen, we realize that It isn't only the fascination that draws people together, but also the nightmare. Not only the dream and the intention of where they want to go, but the unfinished business draws people probably more. The shadow aspect, the nightmare, the the disaster is actually more powerful in drawing people together. And as the relationship uh, deepens, then they start to see their darkness in the opposing Partner, and then they project those bad qualities to the partner. Yeah, and if there is enough love, then that that darkness will be healed. What? But if there isn't enough reflection and love, uh, the darkness will destroy the relationship. Being the donut. So so it's all so the darkness, our unfinished business, because we don't know it well enough, it will impact on whatever we do. Mm. And if we get a strong reaction, we better know that it's certainly got a shadow aspect to it.
0: So, a clue here is to have faith in this case, since you're taking it in a practical example, to have faith in the love, in the bond, in the partner. Yeah. Instead of yielding to suspicion and fear and projection and all that.
2: Yeah. And also, when difficulties come up, um, there are two ways of seeing it. And I think, just like in, in most things, they're opposing views. And either is terrible, but together they're beautiful. And, and so one view is, is none of my business. Is all your troubles. Is not. I am not involved in this. Is you're clearly the troubled person. So I, the other way is, I'm sorry.
0: This is all my fault. Uh, I'm sorry to bear with this. So a- Isn't it true that more females tend to take that inward, and more males tend to take that externalization?
2: Yeah, exactly. Men tend to be less reflective, and women are more preoccupied with their emotional state. So they are more kind of spiritually aware. They are less in that; they're more in their heart rather than in their head. Mm. So they're actually more intuitive generally, but also they get also more affected by their emotions, and, and so they lose, can lose their sight as well. Mm. But they are more in touch. So it is like with many things. I think we. We have to allow two views to remain and see where their dialogue takes us.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah. And with Patricia in the book, uh, she is really, um, we, we kind of play with the notion that spiritual awareness, the spiritual uh, understanding is almost like an inheritable quality, and it lies in families. Not everybody has the fortune or misfortune to, uh, to awaken it. But the way that quality has managed in the family often emerges in the person. And we have that um, Patricia's grandmother was a, a nun and a visionary, mm. really took herself to the boundaries. She left the nunnery, took her own path, and was seen as a madwoman. And and she was a great a favourite grandmother. But And she was being taught by her grandmother to see and to attune but then she started taking on a kind of normal education mm. and she lost the faith in these experiences. So she's a kind of a person that um, that has the gift and yet not the courage to go all the way.
0: That's also a metaphor for modern culture that we've left our roots
2: with. Very much. Yeah. Exactly. So, so the grandmother is really the old culture and Patricia is the modern culture and and the and the challenge that takes us regarding our spirituality. Good point. Well, Olaf is kind of steeped in the old
0: culture, just like the, the grandmother. And, <laughs> yeah, but I think he was a little new agey, to be honest. He is a agey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't differ too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but he does use a, a set of tools that are very traditional. He uses dreams. He, yes, he uses rituals. Yes, he uses hymns. Yes, and, and then we're back to the singing. Yes, and he also flirts with predictions, which is typical fools. Always stay out of predictions, if you ask me. That's a tricky area because, if are you familiar with uh, uh, Peter Kingsley, the brilliant English uh, author scholar? He he wrote in the dark places of um, wisdom. He wrote reality. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now, it's one interesting thing here, and that is that, you know, today people imagine that prophets are someone who, yeah, like predicts what's going to happen. But if you go to the roots that Peter has done, and I'm going to have him on for an interview. But if we go to the roots, we'll see that the ancient healer prophets, especially the Hesha style incubation, they, they what they did was that they went into the complete stillness. Because that's the clue. I mean, in the noise uh, is the humans going out in the world, uh, away from God, away from the source, if you like. Nothing wrong with it. It's just uh, an evolutionary path. Someone has gone into the fourth state, where there's calmness and, and kind of inner... Exactly. You go back to the root, back to the uh, nuclear. Yep. And when th- everything is still, that's when you can encounter the source, the light. And my point with this is that... Those ancient uh, healer prophets, they did this and they entered over to the other side. And the point with prophecy wasn't to say, you know, next year there will be a war or whatever. A real prophet isn't someone who predicts. It's someone who manages to go to the other side, to the realm of the gods, the the archetypes, call it what you want. And here's the clue. Come back, return and bring with you something of the divine realm that you can share in the world. Because, I mean, everybody can do it for themselves, but it also has to be something that you can apply in this world. And if you manage that, if you could bring a bit of that source and bring it back with you and share it with other people so that it will be useful for them too, then you were a prophet.
2: Yeah, yeah. but from another point of view, I think all living beings, are prophetic. Uh, I think it's the very innate- Innate, you mean? Uh, Oh, yeah, even bacteria have a sense what's going to happen. I think the very essence of life means that the time factor is somehow broken. They have a sense what will come, uh, which is important for survival, what's important for their development. So human beings have dreams that sometimes are prophetic. It is very well known in culture. We also know it from kind of research. And there is something about human beings and prediction which is somehow related to the very essence of life.
0: Mm. Right. Well, I can't. I can't debate that. We are closing up to the end here. Um, now, your book is uh, about this experience, this journey that your protagonists have. It just takes place within two weeks, I think. Yes. The whole story. But Olaf, is he crazy? <laughs> or is he spiritual? You want me to ruin the book? <laughs> <laughs> well, the fool don't differ, does he? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on what you think is crazy. I think yeah.
2: uh, it's a label. It is. If you were in those shoes, doesn't really matter whether you're crazy or not. You have to go with your experience.
0: Good point, good point. You end the book by the following hymn. Hail to you the vedest device in Mount Hoffel. Hail to you bard the bright in Mount Snafell Snowfall. Hail to you brand the blessed guardian of the Grail Mountain. We offer rose petals at your feet. Are these the three states you mentioned in the beginning? Sleepwalker, dreaming, quiet and clear? Could be. Um, I think Rather than having an idea, it's more
2: about experience. Mm. Uh, They they are all traditional uh, mountains of sacred worship in Iceland on the east coast and west coast, and in the Lake District in England, Uh, Bran, or or the raven, is the most uh, sacred of the Celtic tradition, Mm. Um, and he's the, the grail keeper, and the highest mountain, which the, the the pilgrimage of uh, the man who drew triangles is going to the, his mountain, which uh, to this day means Grail Mountain or
0: Skalvel. Right. Yeah. It is. That's in uh, that's in the bottom point of the triangle between Lindisfarne. Yes. Saint Molaise. Yes. And then you have Scaffell. Yeah. I'm I'm cheating. I'm reading the chart in your book. You have yeah. some. Uh,
2: uh, often in each country, the highest mountains are the key reference points, and this is the highest mountain in in England. Mm. Okay.
0: Hey, you have a co-author for this book.
2: Yes, uh, Keith Hagenbach. Yeah, we we are kind of neighbours from from Sussex and um, friends from for many many years. We were in a men's group together, and he's a he's an author and and um, a uh, very good writer he he is the pen
0: and uh, he is the master writer he is the um oh i see i see it's like the shakespearean works you're like francis bacon and he's like henry neville <laughs> <laughs> so So he takes care of the artistic expressions and you take care of the ideas.
2: The idea originally came from me, which is from kind of 1992. So it took kind of 20 years to emerge. Wow. But really, we started to do this project together and we met on a weekly basis. And really, almost from day one, these images, we weren't really planning the story. The story took us on a journey. It wrote itself, right? Yes, it wrote absolutely itself. Yeah. Um so we finished the book in a, in about a year after meeting every week but it took us another 3 years to rewrite it because once we we had kind of developed the idea and the basic story we we also had to think about what makes a good book and it's about you know a fascinating start it has to be a powerful ending it's about opening and ending chapters it's about the quantity of material it's about, you know, having a sense where this ebb and flow. So we had to kind of look at all these aspects, but only after the story had gotten written itself. Mm. So the artistry really came of telling a story, came later, but the story more or less created itself.
0: Mm. I see. So you began. But I think it's very hard to... Well, probably not harder than being in a band together. But if you're going to create with someone, you have to be very in flow with them. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So I guess you had a good chemistry on creating. Yeah,
2: we know each other very well and we're both very intuitive. And we had kind of full kind of trust in each other's kind of abilities.
0: Is Keith also a psychiatrist? He is a psychotherapist. Right, right. So, so he was a colleague of you. Yeah, well, he, we didn't
2: ever work together, but he, he worked within the mental health um, as a therapist.
0: And he has uh, issued stuff before, right? Radio plays. And yes,
2: yeah. he's published uh, a few books and, and plays and things like
0: that, yes. We'll put up links um, at your presentation page, at our website. We'll also put a few links to his stuff. Yeah. Have you issued any books other than this one? Not, Not for... Almost a hundred years. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing. And I do know you've written a lot, but for public consummation, can people find other stuff out there? No, no. By your present personality? No. <laughs> you should do something about that. Man. <laughs> it really. will come, it will come. Okay.
2: But, um, yeah, we have, uh, we have a, a, fi- a scriptwriter working on it at the, at the moment. And we have uh, potential film producers who have shown interest. Wow. So we are hoping either to make it as a movie or to a series of um, TV programs. And also we are we are looking at uh, developing a sequel, which will be in the States. Nice. And uh, focused on, on George Washington and his sacred
0: geometry that he was used to found the state. Yeah, that's very popular these days. Yeah. I mean, there are already some Hollywood yes about that subject. So it's in the time right now. Yeah, absolutely, yes. But that's that's another, that's not this manuscript, obviously.
2: Oh, that's the next book.
0: Oh, so you're already uh, working on the next one. Yes. Hmm. So you bring this uh, geometry subject, but this time you're not exploring it in psychiatry and that, but more straight to the esoteric.
2: More historic and, and kind of... Yeah. Having a sense that to awaken the Americans to wow, there is something that has been charged into the land here that we need to explore absolutely that's great hmm. uh, so that's the next the next step is probably going to be ready by the end of the year
1: hmm.
2: so um, then we'll approach a few producers we've got uh, we've already approached a few that are not, possibly two are interested. Hmm. But well, obviously, it takes a lot of work to take it from a book into a a movie. Yeah. Uh, it has to simplify it and streamline Yeah, the problem,
0: it. but if, you, if other people are going to do it, they may slaughter the story because they don't understand the key points. No, we have, we have actually got a, a really esoteric writer. Oh, nice.
2: He's really good at that. So um, we are working quite closely with him. He, he's really intuitive and really, uh, you know, the story of how he found the book is really interesting. Okay. He 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 lives near London. He went to London to a second-hand bookshop. Uh, he had ordered a book, and when he arrived, he uh, they realised that the book had been sent to a wrong shop. <laughs> so, so he went uh, checking what was in and found our book um, there. And he said, "Well, that feels good. Let's have a have a look." And he kind of browsed through it on the way on the train. As he came home, his son came to him and said, "Dad, dad." you have to go with me walking on Mount Schauffel. I, I have decided to, to um, uh, what do you say, gather some money for a good course. Wow. And he said, come on, what's happening here?
0: Yeah, synchronicity, man. <laughs> and for the listener, I have to say that Mount Schauffel is also a protagonist in the book. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or an antagonist, you define it. But- a very important destination point. Yeah, so that's great when stuff like that happens. Ah, it's flow. Yeah, The gods are with you. Yeah, I think so. Mm. I wish you the best of blessings, fortune with that. Thank you. Mm. But you do arrange conferences, right? Or retreats. I'm not sure what it is. You, I know you had one uh, not that long ago at I- Yeah, we had,
2: uh, we had a conference, uh, part of the esoteric Quest series of co- conferences um, onto Mount Snifel under the abode of Bard, our high god of old Iceland, uh, last August. Right. uh, We were kind of exploring Nordic mythology, um, especially the experiential parts and some of the ideas. Um, and, And really the interesting fact that in Iceland, which was the outskirt of Europe in the 12th, 13th century, this was the, was a golden age. It was the highest culture on the globe at the time. Mm. And it doesn't really make sense why that was the case. But these kind of esoteric bloomings, they occur from time to time,
0: and they seem to come from nowhere, and they go. Right. By the way, are you going to have more of these conferences?
2: Yeah, we're going to have the, the next conference in August in Lewis, uh, Lewis and Harris, uh, which are the Outer Hebrides in Scotland. Oh, right. Uh, So we're going to look at the the origins and the mingling of Nordic culture and the Celtic uh, and look at various kind of aspects of of these two. Um, So I'm going to continue a little bit with my uh, study of Nordic mythology and and the sacred geometry, both in Iceland Norway and in England and how England and Scotland, how these connect. Others will explore other parts we'll be looking at uh, also the megalithic tradition there, and and there will be some experiential trips before the conference and after, both going to Finnhorn and wow. uh, Isle of Iona and different things. So
0: it's going to be a fascinating conference. Indeed maybe i should go there yep. and and we of course we're going to put up links for this uh, at our website so if people are interested they can um, they can i mean you're not the only speaker no, but uh,
2: there are many speakers
0: many speakers yeah, yeah yeah but they'll get the chance also to encounter some of your magic yeah so um, uh, yeah and you have a website for that don't you yes i'll send you the link yeah we'll put it up but you can also just say it here uh, for the esoteric quest, you mean? For anything you have, actually. Also the book. Uh, the
2: book you can find on Facebook, just under The Man Who Drew Triangles. Uh, you can also just uh, Google The Man Who Drew Triangles, and there's a, there a small website there.
0: I guess they should
2: probably put in your name, too. Yes, you can find it there as well. But you mainly end up on my clinic.
0: Which is a good place to. I mean, if I'm ever getting committed, I want to be committed in your clinic. (laughs) (laughs) We don't commit people there. (laughs) Pardon? We don't commit people at my clinic. No, it's a rehabilitation. I know. I know. Yes,
2: our motto is: uh, you have to take take care, take responsibility for your health.
0: Nothing happens without your initiative. Yeah, that's excellent. I mean, that's real healing. Yeah, you have to own it. Yeah, you can't force healing upon anyone, anyway. So, yeah. But the uh, the esoteric conferences. Uh, what's the website there?
2: Um, I think if you just uh, Google esoteric quest and possibly put in Lewis L E W I S, it may not be up and running. It's going to be up and running probably next week. But you you'll find the esoteric. Uh, Quest uh, website without problems. There is, it's already here www.esotericquest.org. Mm. It shows the information on the uh, Quest on the 27th, 22nd of August
0: this year. But you did have a website, I remember, for the book. Yeah, this. Not just Facebook.
2: Yes, I, I have. It's smaller now, but that's just the, the man who drew
0: triangles. We'll put up all these links, but how can they get this book if they're interested? It's Amazon. Okay, so it's on Amazon.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, that's great. Well, I guess that wraps it up then. I should just thank you for participating.
2: Likewise, thank you, Al.
0: And uh, nice to touch base again. Tell me next time you're coming to Norway, we'll hook up. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And I'll come to Iceland eventually. I'm sure you will. It's been really nice, really talking, nice talking to you, to you Al. Al. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll talk to you later, you. Brother, brother. Great. Great. Indeed. Great. Indeed. You take care. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Dr. Erlandson for sharing with us his time and insights. Before parting, I will read a brief quote from his book. The following is from a dialogue between the two main protagonists, Olaf the mystic and Patricia, his psychiatrist. It is not really a question of choosing. To make a choice is usually a logical process. That is not really how I work, how I find my patterns. I do not even look for them, you see. I simply tune into the land and wait to see what it tells me. You could say, I listen, and let it guide me. I think my connection to the land, to the planet, is different from yours. I would describe it as allowing myself to enter the stream of the guiding consciousness of the Earth. That means I do not rely Only on what my logical, rational mind tells me. It means I pay more attention to what you psychiatrists would probably call delusions or hallucinations. Interesting. So for you, what I might describe as a delusion, for me, could be an important message contained in the field of transformation, leading me to a deeper level of understanding. You are trained to see delusions or visions or schizophrenia as something wrong with people, something to be cured. Is that not so? I suppose it depends on the way the individual's behavior is affected, she told him. But I take your point, that kind of thing is often pathologized. Even though for some people they might in reality be states of consciousness they need to enter so they can receive the wisdom of the planet. Coming back to my map then, I did not choose these cities, I would describe the process as allowing the planet to guide me to them. What I found amazing was that when I had drawn these patterns, like this goat triangle, they turned out to be mathematically very, very precise. That precision I took to be a validation of my intuitive choices, which is in the shamanic tradition. Really? What is the connection between your patterns and the shamanic tradition? They enter altered states to do their work. Not not just shamans, all kinds of what people call spiritual guides, medicine men or healers do very much the same thing. Of course, it is an accepted part of the culture and tradition in their own countries. In your country, he shrugged, they would be sent to a place like this. Someone like you would say they are mad and they would be locked up. Are you worried that might happen to you? Olaf peered at her through half-closed eyes. Do you think I should be locked up, doctor? Nothing you have told me so far suggests you are a danger to yourself or others, she told him. On that basis, the answer is no. Good. Good. Reaching out, he took the map from her hand and traced the lines he had drawn on it with a finger. Did you notice this is not just any triangle? Two of its sides are exactly the same length, which means it is an isosceles triangle. The chances of a triangle with such properties occurring by chance is practically zero. I can show you the calculation. Pick any of these. He waved a hand at the paper scattered across the carpet like autumn leaves. And I will show you perfect geometric shapes. You will find them all over the planet. Gathering up a handful, he began passing them to her. I studied the English ones because I happened to be coming here, but look, they are everywhere. They appeared before her faster than she could possibly read them. But she identified Ireland, different parts of England and Scotland, as well as France, India and the Holy Land, Switzerland and the United States, each bearing shapes and patterns. Triangles seemed to be the Icelanders favorites, alone or in combinations of two, three or even more, but she also caught glimpses of rectangles, an occasional pentagram and once what she thought was a Maltese cross. Fascinating, she glanced up at him. Yes, yes, I see what you mean. These are not created by my imagination. All I have done is link together places on the planet which possess special associations, he explained, studying her face. And please remember, none of them could occur by chance. That is impossible. And do other people accept your work as valid? I have not shown them to many people, he shrugged. A few, I expect, would understand, would accept. Most probably would not. Ah, uh, How would you feel if your ideas were rejected? The work of pioneers in any field of human knowledge is often rejected, he smiled. But think how important patterns are. You use them, don't you? Triangles? I don't think so. No, no, but right now, you are comparing me with patterns of crazy people. He pulled a face and squinted at her. Mm, I wonder, what pattern does this Olaf fit? A pattern of sane man or mad ones? That's it for today. Remember to share our programs with other people whom you think may be in sympathy with them. Also, many of you have complained that our public releases lately have been slow, which is true, but that's just because we are short on video makers right now. If you'd like to contribute in this regard, feel free to contact us also if you've donated remember you can join our website where you'll get access to all programs and enjoy a more frequent release than at our public channel and of course get them months before so thanks for staying with us your host as ever has been Al We'll soon be back with another smashing show thanks to our patrons and the Borealis. Be seeing you.
1: Number one.